get on with the main event here, which is to introduce our speaker, Dwight Hughes. Um, Dwight Hughes, uh, Dwight is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. He was telling us at the table about uh, wanting to go there and getting there and graduating from there with a, a master's in history. I believe he said, right? Bachelor's in history. I just gave you a promotion. <laughs> All right. He served as a naval warfare officer for over 20 years and uh, everything from uh, destroyers to aircraft carriers. He was on Kitty Hawk, uh, as, uh, as I recall. Uh, he was awarded the Bronze Star and the Purple Heart. He's a contributing author at the Emerging Civil War blog. And uh, he is editor and contributor to the Civil War on the Water. Favorite stories and fresh perspectives from the historians at the Emerging Civil War, which is due out next month. Well, we can't even get it now, but we can ask him back to talk about that sometime. Uh, he is the author of a Confederate biography, The Cruise of the CSS Shenandoah, in 2015. And we had, and I believe, I assume still do, have the logbook of the Shenandoah in the Chicago Historical Society. Um, I remember years ago, I was down there for a tour. I don't know if it was with the uh, Chicago Roundtable. I think it was with Salt Creek. And they brought it out and we got to pass it around and hold it in our hands. So uh, it's there. And then, of course, unlike anything that ever floated, the Monitor in Virginia and the Battle of Hampton Roads, March 8th, 9th, 1862, for the award winning emergency. Civil War series, and that will be Dwight's topic tonight. And so please join me in welcoming Dwight Hughes. Okay, well, thank you for having me. Can everyone hear me, hear me in the back all right there? Just say not. I don't know. Is it on? Oh. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, there. Yeah, there. Okay. All right. All right. Um, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back in the heartland. I was up north a little bit last night and they made me dress up. <laughs> I came down here and you guys were a little more relaxed, which is great. All right. Uh, can we turn off these front lights here? Okay, let's see the screen a little bit better. That's good. You all right? Perfect. So you have to point it toward the computer. Turn this on here. All right, there we go. It was Saturday, March 8, 1862. The USS Monitor steams into Chesapeake Bay after rushing down from New York through gale force winds, almost sinking in the process. 14 officers and 57 crewmen were encased in the hull below the waterline. The captain ordered an exhausted and dispirited crew. Okay. 
I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Monroe's mission was to stop the Confederate ironclad ram, CSS Virginia, from destroying the wooden warships of the Union fleet and Hampton Roads. Monitor was a steam-propelled iron-plated raft. There we go. Okay. Monitor was a steam-propelled iron-plated raft with a cylindrical iron turret and two 11-inch guns. The flat expanse of deck was barely a foot and a half above the surface. 14 officers and 57 crewmen were encased in the hull below the waterline. The captain ordered an exhausted and dispirited crew to strip the vessel of her sea rig and make all preparations for battle. The mid-19th century mariners, this closed and cramped artificial space, which resembled future submarines, was a radical departure from sailing and fighting on the open decks and in the high rigging of a traditional man of war, and not a little bit intimidating. Monitor redefined the relationship between men and machines in war, challenging ancient concepts of honor and valor. These developments parallel the transformative combat experience of soldiers who began the conflict standing up in open fields, manfully confronting the enemy face to face, but ended up burrowing into trenches and crouching behind elaborate fortifications. Technology had advanced the defense over the offense. Me Master William Keeter wrote to his wife, you may rest assured your better half will be in no more danger from rebel compliments than if he were seated with you at home. There isn't danger enough to give us any glory. Not a man is exposed in action. Our boilers and our machinery are completely ineffectually protected. Monitor would become a cultural icon of American industrial strength and ingenuity in advertisements for everything from whiskey to refrigerators. She embodied social and institutional as well as industrial revolutions. But this would be a symbolic role which would outshine her accomplishments beyond a single engagement in a specific set of circumstances. After the battle, the Union caught monitor fever. 50 monitors would be built in a bewildering range of one, two, and three turret classes. But as a warship type, they were of limited utility. With a low profile, monitors were not seagoing vessels and were not effective against offshore fortifications, although they did neutralize several Confederate ironclads. The most important technical innovation was the rotating armored turret, which would evolve into 20th century battleships. But during Monitor's construction, public opinion had been decidedly ambivalent concerning this strange watercraft. The technological transition in one generation from timeless horse-drawn transportation to huge puffing locomotives had been breathtaking. On the water, the tall warships always inspired awe, but so far they looked much the same even when driven by steam as well as by sail. It was not clear where little monitor fit in this revolution. Was she even a ship 
or just a small ironclad two-gun battery. Many could not conceive that a slab of iron would even float. One Vermont reporter could hardly find words to describe the thing. She is, in fact, unlike anything that ever floated on Neptune's bosom. Used from a distance, he wrote, Monitor looked insignificant and harmless, but standing upon his deck, she appeared powerful and invulnerable. This sea monster resembled the Leviathan of the scriptures. The vessel had a more singular appearance, wrote one officer. From a half mile distant, she appeared to be sinking. The hull was not even visible, while the turret sat upon the water by itself. People said she looked like a washtub on a raft, a cheese box on a plank, a hat on a shingle, etc., etc. Nathaniel Hawthorne would write, it looked like a gigantic rat trap. <laughs> it was ugly, questionable, suspicious, evidently mischievous. Nay, I will allow myself to call it devilish. Monitor's captain, John L. Wharton, recalled, here was an unknown, untried vessel with all but a small portion below the waterline, her crew to live with the ocean beating over their heads. An iron coffin-like ship of which the gloomiest predictions were made, with her crew shut out from sunlight and from the air above the sea, depending entirely on artificial means to supply the air they breathe. A failure of the machinery would be almost certain death to her men. Monitor proceeded across Chesapeake Bay as evening descended on that Saturday. They heard heavy guns in the distance. They saw plumes of smoke hanging over the land. Little black spots would spring into the air Pause for a moment and expand into large white clouds. Gun flashes lit the darkening horizon. Bursting shells flashed in the air. Pilot boarded and informed them that the dreaded Virginia was wreaking havoc in Hampton Road. The USS Cumberland was sunk. The USS Congress was ablaze. Vessels were fleeing like a covey of frightened quails. Their lights danced over the water in all directions. The steam frigate USS Minnesota, the most powerful ship the Navy could deploy, had run hard aground off Newport News earlier that day while pursuing the marauding Virginia. The rebel monster Shirley would return in the morning to destroy Minnesota. The warden was ordered to take monitor to defend her. An atmosphere of gloom pervaded the fleet, recalled Lieutenant Green. The pygmy aspect of the newcomer did not inspire confidence among those who had witnessed the destruction of the day before. Congress blazed like a gigantic torch stuck in the mud where she had been pulverized by Virginia. Around 2 a.m., she blew up. Certainly a grander sight was never seen, wrote Lieutenant Green, but it went straight to the marrow of our bones. 
near us too, at the bottom of the river, lay the Cumberland, with her silent crew of brave men who died while fighting their guns to the water's edge. The USS Monitor entered Hampton Roads, cleared for action, and anchored near Minnesota. Her journey to this point had been as unprecedented as the impending battle. So let us step back for a minute and discuss her origins. Furious ironclad arms race was on in Europe. New developments in naval armaments, larger guns, explosive shells, rifled bores, had rendered wooden warships increasingly vulnerable. Significant improvements have been made in iron armor in Europe, as demonstrated in the recent Crimean War. The French launched the first ironclad battleship, the Loire, in November 1859. In 1860, the British produced the magnificent HMS Warrior, the first warship with a wholly iron hull and the most advanced, most powerful in the world. The U.S. Navy has been in the forefront of developments in steam propulsion and naval armaments. In the 1840s and 50s, the Navy ceased building sail-only warships altogether. While they developed advanced wooden steam cruisers, culminating in the Merrimack frigate class. These powerful warships were equal or superior to conventional European frigates. But Americans had no far-flung empire to defend and no neighboring threats. Naval strategy focused on harbor and coastal defense with swift cruisers like Merrimack to protect commerce in distant waters. They let the Europeans pursue costly experiments in the unproven technology of iron armor. Then secession altered the strategic picture dramatically. In Europe, the war disrupted industry, trade, and finance, causing high unemployment and social and political unrest. Great Britain seriously considered intervening on behalf of the Confederacy, perhaps forcefully. British support for rebel commerce raiders and blockade running enraged the United States. Arguments over the responsibilities of neutral countries in wartime Harken back to 1812 and the revolution. The specter of a third war with Great Britain, the world's most powerful nation, now armed with seagoing ironclads, became real and immediate. In the summer of 1861, Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells struggled with the notion of ironclad vessels. It was a subject full of difficulty and doubt, he told Congress. England and France had built large, powerful seagoing ironclads. The United States had none. It was evident that a new and material element in maritime warfare was developing itself and demanded immediate attention. Iowa Senator James Grimes supported the development of ironclads. We need a more effective blockade, he wrote. Scoundrels north as well as scoundrels south are carrying on an unlawful trade in fraud of our revenue. Pirates and sea rovers must be captured. Southern harbors and ports must be retaken. Commerce must be protected. 
and northern harbors defended. Suppose England, in her love for cotton, should attempt to break our blockade, and we should get into trouble with her. What is to become of our northern cities and our cities upon the coast? Secretary Wells is overseeing an immense, unprecedented warship procurement and building program while instigating a nearly impossible continent-wide blockade. Without further study, he concluded, it would not be advisable to commit heavy expenditures by way of experiment on unproven technology. But the most immediate threats were Confederate ironclads under construction in Mobile, Norfolk, and New Orleans, particularly the former USS Merrimack, now becoming the CSS Virginia. The Mobile Register posted that this new weapon would be a floating fortress that will be able to defeat the whole Navy of the United States and bombard its cities with a great size, strength, powerful engines, and invulnerable iron casing, she would easily destroy or disperse the blockading fleet. She could throw bombs into Fort Monroe. We hope to soon hear that she is ready to commence her avenging career upon the seas. Northern public opinion was aroused also. Philadelphia Examiner thought it curious that the United States should be so behind the age. If we intend to have a national naval force worthy of our power and pretensions, we shall have to build iron case vessels as France and England have done and are doing. Congress directed Secretary Wells to investigate plans and specifications for constructing iron or steel-clad steamships or steam batteries, appropriating for that purpose $1.5 million. Wells approved three designs to confront the potential European threat. First two were conventional iron or conventional wooden hulls with iron cladding, broadside battery, auxiliary steam engines and sailing rig. They would become USS New Ironsides and the USS Galena. The final selection was proposed by Swedish engineer John Erickson. The intense stocky Erickson, born in 1803, had a long career in Sweden, England, and America, designing, building, and improving steam engines. He produced a host of inventions, including the shipboard steam condenser, and collected numerous patents. Erickson's proposal possessed, recalled Secretary Wells, extraordinary and valuable features for coast and river blockade. It involved a revolution in naval warfare. President Lincoln remarked, all I have to say is what the girl said when she put her foot into the stocking. It strikes me there's something in it. Ericsson's low-profile concept was inspired by Swedish lumber rats. He never claimed to have invented the revolving turret. The idea had been circulating among engineers for decades, but he was the first to successfully deploy it. The ironclad board had serious reservations 
but reluctantly agreed to proceed. The plan addressed the critical requirement, combat-ready craft suitable for restricted waters to be rapidly constructed and deployed. In its favor were presumed invulnerability, small size, shallow draft, and limited exposed target area. Worrisome unknowns included over-reliance on steam power, semi-submerged hull, questionable stability, and untried turret-mounted armament. Monitor also was unseaworthy in an uncomfortable and cramped environment to operate guns and steam machinery. The contract was signed on October 4th, 1861 for an ironclad shot-proof steam battery. John Erickson and his backers were to deliver the vessel complete and ready for service within the unprecedented span of 100 days for a price of $275,000. Erickson began a frantic and incredibly complex manufacturing process using civilian facilities because Navy shipyards could not produce ironclads. He orchestrated a conglomerate of nine contractors and multiple subcontractors working simultaneously in at least seven Northeast cities to produce raw materials, angle iron, bar iron, plate iron, rivets, and finished components for assembly of continental ironworks in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Most of these firms clustered around New York City and Albany, centers of steam engine and iron manufacturing. They applied methods of materials in common use for locomotives and other land products. Only Yankees could produce an experimental ironclad vessel from scratch in 100 days. Despite the rush, Erickson did not scrimp on furnishings and gadgets. The officers' closet-sized staterooms were appointed in Victorian opulence, while the crewmen slept in hammocks on the more utilitarian berth deck. Six-inch round glass windows or deck lights set in the deck overhead, supplemented by oil lamps, provided meager illumination. Erickson crafted a compact 400-horsepower steam engine with a single cylinder, 40 inches in diameter, driving two horizontal pistons. Auxiliary steam engines, an uncommon feature at the time, drove the revolution of the turret and the ventilation blowers. A steam condenser provided fresh water. The guns were mounted in customized, low-profile friction carriages to dampen recoil in the confined turret. Erickson installed the first custom-designed pressure flushing below the waterline water closets or heads. The ship's surgeon operated the flushing valves in the wrong order and suffered the indignity of being blown off the seat by a jet of water. Gideon <laughs> oh. Wells selected 27-year veteran Lieutenant John L. Warden to command monitor. Gordon had been captured by Confederates the previous year while running secret dispatches to Fort Pickens in Florida. He became the conflict's first prisoner of war. 
confined in Alabama for eight months before being exchanged, Warden was still ill and weak when he assumed command. Lieutenant Samuel Dana Green was named executive officer, second in command. The 22-year-old Marylander graduated from the United States Naval Academy of Annapolis in June 1859. Green represented the Young Professional Officer Corps, educated at the New School, steeped in new technologies, and fired in the crucible of war to lead the Navy into the 20th century. On the drizzly morning of January 30th, 1862, monitors slid down the ways into the East River before a large, spontaneous crowd. The New York Tribune wrote, the assemblage cheered Rochester as the strange-looking craft glided swiftly and gracefully into its new home. Nearby vessels fired salutes. Predictions that she would break her back or swamp upon launching were disproven. But the CSS Virginia was expected to appear in Hampton Roads any day, so work continued around the clock to complete fitting out. Despite futile attempts at secrecy, journalists swarmed the ship, leaving in the reporting little to the imagination. Captain Warden appears from warships in New York Harbor. He described to them the probable perils of passage and the certainty of conduct. Many more enthusiastically responded than were required, he wrote, but a better crew no naval commander ever had the honor to command. Few of them had pre-war sea experience, however. Most were recent recruits with little or no, no maritime experience. Some were European immigrants, and at least two were African-American. These volunteers endured ribbing from fellow seamen. In a solemn and prophetic tone, one old salt proclaimed, you fellows certainly have got a lot of nerve but want to commit suicide one or the other. Several volunteers took one look at monitor and promptly deserted. <laughs> And after hurried and superficial testing, the monitor got underway for Hampton Roads on March 6, 1862. On, the, on that morning of Saturday, March 8, as monitor approached the entrance to Chesapeake Bay, a frustrated commander-in-chief convened a council of war to brought Major General George P. McClellan into action on his proposed campaign to capture Richmond. He planned to land at Urbana on the Rappahannock, but as General Joe Johnston fell back from Manassas, McClellan decided instead to invade the peninsula at Fort Monroe. Throughout that afternoon, telegrams filtered in as the former USS Merrimack, now CSS Virginia, dallied forth into Hampton Roads. The Merrimack is close to hand, but one. The Merrimack is engaging the Cumberland in close quarters. The Congress is now burning. For a while, the news looked very badly, recalled Presidential Secretary John Hay. Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton ordered that the news be made public at once to alert Northern force that they were in great danger. The next morning, Sunday, March 9th, wrote a senior Treasury official, 
was as gloomy as any that Washington had experienced since the beginning of the war. Lincoln called an emergency session at the White House for a much alarmed cabinet. John Hay reported that panic was intense at Willard's Hotel. Nothing was too wild to be believed. Presidential Secretaries John Hay and John Nicolay characterized this cabinet meeting as, quote, perhaps the most excited and impressive of the whole war. Gideon Wells was asked what could be done to counter this formidable monster. But the Navy Secretary had no answers beyond faith in the untried monitor. She should have arrived at Hampton Roads the day before. But due to a break in the telegraph cable, Bay and Washington had no news of her. According to, according to Wells, Secretary of War Stanton insisted the rebel ironclad would change the whole character of the war. She would destroy every naval vessel and take Fort Monroe. McClellan's campaign against Richmond must be abandoned. General Burnside's forces must be recalled from the North Carolina Sounds. The vital blockading base of Port Royal Sound must be given up. Virginia would come up the Potomac, disperse Congress, destroy the capital. She might go to New York and Boston, destroy those cities or hold them for ransom. The Army Secretary was contemptuous of the notion that a two-gun iron raft could stop them. But Wilson, but Wells ensured her that Virginia, but Wells ensured the cabinet that Virginia was so loaded down with armor, she could not venture outside Hampton Roads. She could not ascend the river and surprise us with a cannonball. Certainly she could not attack simultaneously every city and harbor on the coast. Stanton telegraphed governors and major cities of the North to man their forts and place timber rafts and other obstructions at the mouths of harbor. Preparations were made to block the Potomac. That Sunday afternoon, the chattering telegraph finally produced the lost message of the night before. Mother had arrived, and we'll take care of Virginia, he said. President and his cabinet awaited the outcome. In Hampton Roads that morning, the USS Minnesota was still hard to ground. The crew making hasty preparations to abandon ship with monitor anchored nearby. Fog lifting from the water about 8 a.m. revealed the CSS Virginia approaching. Minnesota's captains declared the monitor's Captain Warden, if I could not lighten my ship off the shoal, I shall destroy it. Warden assured him, I will stand by you to the last if I can help him. No, sir, you cannot help me, was the reply. Within the dim, claustrophobic metal drum of monitor's turret, 20 feet in diameter, behind eight inches of iron, squatted the two immense 11-inch Dahlgren's Bluebirds. Lieutenant Green supervised 16 brawny sailors packed in eight to a gun. None of them had been drilled on these guns in this turret. 
Captain Warden took station on the pilot house platform near the bow, his head and shoulders in the box, peering through a half-inch viewing slit. Jammed at his elbow was the pilot and the helmsman. The only communication between the pilot house and the turret was via runners between the two stations on the deck below. Below the turret, recalled Paymaster Keeter, everyone was at his post, fixed like a statue. The most profound silence reigned. We were enclosed in what we supposed to be an impenetrable armor. We knew that a powerful foe was about to meet us. Ours was an untried experiment, and our enemy's first fire might make it a coffin for us all. The suspense was awful as we waited in the dim light, expecting every moment to hear the crash of our enemy's shot. Warden charged directly for Virginia, placing a little monitor between Minnesota and the foe. In the gloom below, he heard the muffled bump of a gun, then another and another. Virginia and Minnesota blasted away at each other at long range, skipping shells along the water's surface. Rounds could take 20 to 40 skips. Several friendly shots bounced off monitors. Rope Keeler, the infernal howl of the shells as they flew over our vessel, was all that broke the silence and made it seem still more terrible. Captain Warden close to about a third of a mile, altered course and ordered commence firing. The mammoth gun port cover rumbled open, the big black muzzle protruded. Lieutenant Green yanked the firelock at 8.45 a.m. The entire structure throbbed and trembled with a deafening concussion as the eight-ton behemoth leapt inward. The rebel ironclad turned her head upstream and replied with a broadside, followed by a volume of musketry, which rattled on our decks like hailstones that caused no damage. Those first shots made quite a sensation on worried gunners inside the turret. The warden expected that most rebel shots against the curved exterior of the turret would glance off without damage. But he was worried that a shot fired directly in line with the vertical axis of the turret could deform the structure and jam the revolving mechanisms. The captain also feared that hundreds of bolt and rivet heads holding together eight layers of one-inch iron plate would blast off creating lethal projectiles inside the turret when hit outside. In either case, monitor would be helpless. But he reported, 150-pound projectile hitting straight on from 30 yards just created a smooth depth, perfect mold of the shell two and a half inches deep. The indentation carried right through eight inches of plate without cracking or splitting the iron. For everyone's relief, enemy fire did not dislodge a single rivet head, and the turret continued to revolve. One rebel shell struck the vulnerable deck edge and tore up one of the plates. Worried that the blow might open a seam below the waterline, Warden crawled out of the gunboat, walked to the side, 
lay down upon his chest to examine the damage, with bullets singing off the iron deck as thick as hailstones in a storm. The hull was uninjured except for a few splinters of wood. So he crawled back into the turret and announced to the crew that Virginia could not sink them if we let her pound us for a month. Men cheered. Guns bellowed through choking white smoke shot with flame. Round screen clang boomed and splashed all around. Engines thumped and clanked. Floors roared. Black clouds billowed from the stacks as the big propellers thrashed the water. The men trapped inside, many stripped of the waist with scraps of cloth around their ears, shouted, sweated, and struggled to manage their metal monsters. Virginia's Lieutenant Catesby Jones reported, we were often within a ship's length of monitor. Once, while passing, we fired a broadside at her only a few yards distant. She and her turret appeared to be under perfect control. The light draft enabled her to move, move about us at pleasure. Ironclad against ironclad, recalled Monitor's chief engineer. We maneuvered about the bay and went at each other with mutual fierceness. They circled awkwardly in what would appear to a modern observer as slow motion. Five times during the engagement, we touched each other, wrote Lieutenant Green. The shot, scale, grape, canister, musket, and rifle balls flew about us in every direction. It did us no damage. Our turret was struck several times, and though the noise was pretty loud, it did not affect us any. Inside the turret, two men leaned against the bulkhead, just as a rebel shot clanged against the outside, knocking them senseless and throwing one clean over the gun. Both recovered by the following morning, the only injuries among the crew. The effect of one shot up in a revolving drum is perplexing to Lieutenant Green. Both vessels were continuously turning, backing, and forwarding, while the turrets spun independently. This was not your traditional man-of-war broadside gun deck. Green could see out only through the few-inch gap between the gun nozzle and the top of the gun port. Favorite target for eager muskets on Virginia. The smoke, noise, concussion, and the whirling of the turret, the lieutenant was disoriented and frequently blind. He could not see the enemy, the rebel projectile, Entering an open gun port would put them out of action. He could not see how his guns were pointed relative to his own vessel. Careless rounds striking the pilot house directly in front of the turret would end the fight. To make matters worse, the steam driven turret was slow to start revolving, and once moving, slow to stop, and even slower to reverse. Like all monitors and machinery, these mechanisms were undergoing their first combat trial. Green found it nearly impossible to stop rotation in line of fire, open the gun port, sight, and shoot at a target that was itself moving. So he settled on a pattern. Rotate the turret away from Virginia to stop the load, leaving gun points open to save time and effort, 
Then, when ready, start revolving again and fire both guns on the fly as the target swept past the muzzles. Green personally aimed and fired every round. To Virginia's Lieutenant John Taylor Wood, monitor appeared but a picnic. But in her size was one great element of her success, you know. Monitor was firing every seven or eight minutes and nearly every shot struck. A Confederate Marine recalled, when Monitor's turret revolved, we could see nothing but two immense guns. Those guns bellowed and promptly disappeared while his gun crew struggled to respond. Lieutenant Jones wondered how the Yankees could take aim so quickly. The Virginia, however, was a large target, he wrote, and generally so near and generally so near that Monitor's shot did not often miss. It did not appear to us that our shell had any effect on Monitor. Jones maneuvered his lumbering vessel for nearly an hour trying to ram and board monitor. The warden turned away and suffered only a glancing blow. In the process, monitor just missed Virginia's submerged stern, almost snapping off her rudder and propeller. As monitor slid by, Virginia delivered a 68-pound rifle shell against the pilot house for about 20 yards. Captain Warden's eyes and close behind the viewing slip, the explosion cracked and almost broke the iron box, flooding it with light. Paymaster Keeler stood below the platform awaiting orders. A flash of light and a cloud of smoke filled the house. I noticed the captain stagger and put his hands to his eyes. The blood was running from his face, which was blackened with, with powder smoke. Pilot and the helmsman were shaken but not injured, while a stunned and partially blinded warden ordered the helm to starboard, turning monitor away from the action into shallow water where Virginia could not follow and her guns could not reach. My eyes, warden said, I am blind. But do not mind me. Save the Minnesota if you can. Lieutenant Green came forward from the turret to assume command. Seeing Monitor withdraw, Minnesota's captain ordered every preparation to destroy his ship. But the rebel ironclad did not approach. Evening was coming, the tide was ebbing, Virginia was damaged and low on ammunition. Lieutenant Jones decided to retire, assuming that he could resume the contest the next day. Confederates would excoriate Jones for leaving Minnesota in enemy hands. Now in command of Monitor, Lieutenant Green longed to re-engage, but Virginia was retreating. He had to cover Minnesota. Another hit on the pilot house could be disabled and the wounded captain needed attention. Monitor let go a few last shots and turned away. 
Green also would be criticized for this decision by armchair Evans. Paymaster Keeler climbed through the iron hatch to a deck strewn with chill fragments. Virginia's parting shot shrieked over their heads and exploded 100 feet away. Wall steamers and boats from Newport News, Fort Monroe, and the various men of war surrounded them, all eager to learn the extent of our injuries and congratulate us on our victory. Thousands of spectators were astonished to learn that Monitor was uninjured and ready to resume the fight. Fort the Minnesota, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, was David Sparks, had seen the whole fight. He hailed down the monitor that they had fought the greatest naval battle on record and behaved as gallantly as men could. Rule Lieutenant Green to his parents, I felt proud and happy then, mother, and felt fully repaid for all that I had suffered. When told that Minnesota was saved, Warden said, then I could die happy. Future Admiral John Warden would recover most of the sight in his right eye, but his face was permanently blackened and his left eye destroyed. Monitor was struck 22 times, twice on the pilot house, nine on the turret, and eight in the side armor, and three on deck. Lieutenant Green reported that he was black with smoke and powder down to his underclothes. His nervous system was shot. Every bone ached. He could hardly stand. My nerves and muscles twitched as though electric shock were continually passing through. And my head ached as if it would burst. Sometimes I thought my brain would come right out over my eyebrows. I lay down and tried to sleep. I might as well have tried to fly. Thank you. Oh, I'd be happy to answer any questions. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's a story we all know, but very well told. Thank you for that. Uh, lots of things I learned that I thought I knew, but I think my question involves more about uh, uh, you know, the uh, present day uh, monitor, I guess, with the Virginia Forum, that there is a, there's a museum in Virginia. Uh, what, what can you tell us about what we can do to learn more about uh, the monitor, museum, et cetera? Oh, yes. If, if you ever have the opportunity to be in the Hampton Roads area, must visit the Mariners Museum in Newport News, where the Monitor Center has this exhibit. It's both a museum and, and, a, and a, uh, um, a, a week of recovery center. They have the parts of the, of the monitor that were brought up from the bottom of the ocean off um, of Cape Hatteras. Uh, you can see the turret in its bath of preservative from parts of the engine. They have four reconstructions of the turret, uh, two of them. One of them's upright in operational mode, and the other one's upside down. In the, in the state of Chicago, these were full mock ups so you can, you can see what it looked like. They've got lots of, lots of uh, pieces of the monitor there, wonderful displays, 
uh, of the uh, interior. And it's one of the biggest uh, museums, certainly one of the greatest naval museums in the world. So it's in this, uh, it would be, be a great place to uh, to uh, take a tour. There's some information in the book about that. And, and is the turgency is still uh, submerged in solution? Yeah, the turn is upside down, submerged in solution, uh, but uh, it soaks up the uh, the chemicals to preserve. It would be similar to what they did with the honey, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Same sort of process. And you can, you know, there's a catwalk where you can walk and look in the window and you can look down into We've got the turret parts of the engine. Also, out in the museum, we've got the propeller and a whole, whole bunch of other pieces of it. How long will it remain so? I'm not really sure. I hear it probably. Other questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, about how many men died in the uh, from the ships that the Virginia hit before the, the monitor came? Oh, gosh, I can't give you a good number off the top of my head, but um, a good a good percentage of the of the crews of both ships um, were killed in um, uh, when they went down. And uh, so we're in the hundreds. Uh, I don't know if you get one of them coming to the you said several times the monitor was not, they knew the monitor was not seaworthy. Yeah. So what was she bring in the Atlantic? Trying to get the hand to roads. And yeah. she's saying. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, when she's saying she was on her way down south uh, to, to Port Royal. Uh, she was gonna she was going to participate with other vessels. Uh, in another operation that uh, I think it was Charles. They, they, hit, they hit another gale like they did coming down from New York. And only this time she didn't survive. Uh, ships throughout history have had sea trials before they've been commissioned and sent into con combat. Uh, did the monitor have any sea trials before it was rushed down the after roads? Um, it had one short sea trial. They took her out off Sandy Hook for a day or so. Um, and they only did that because when they first got her on the way trying to get her from Greenpoint, Brooklyn, back to, this, back to the New York Navy Yard, she became so erratic and steering. She, she bounced, kept bouncing off the banks of the river. <laughs> she had a lot of her steering gear. Well, well, they managed to correct that. Warden right? insisted they get out and do some tests. So they went out and did some tests. They rotated the turret. They fired the guns. <laughs> there were stories about that, too. But anyway, they had some quick tests, but that was it. That was all they had time for. They had to get down to Hampton Roads. And of course, uh, they only made it just barely. And they almost didn't even make that because, oh. because they almost sank on the way down. So uh, it was nip and tuck all the way. Okay. Sort of a related question about the sinkability of the monitor. Uh, in the 1870s, European and other nations built ocean-going monitors that had temporary higher sides, you know, so they could uh, do a sea, sea voyage. Was there ever a contemplation that the monitor or other monitors would be built with that feature so it could have a sea uh, ocean-going capability? Well, not not during the war. Uh, they built a whole bunch of monitors, but used them basically 
concentrate on the blockade and the Union in 1863 use the monitors to, to recapture Charleston Harbor. And that was a disaster because they weren't good against the fortifications. But that's why they built the other two ironclads, the USS Ironclad, New Ironclads and the USS Galena. They were intended to see going ironclads to, to, to be ready to oppose the British or the French if they came over with their ironclads. Unfortunately, the Galena was pretty much failed ironclad. It didn't work very well. They ended up taking the armor off of her. The New Ironclads Harbor was, was a, good, a good ship for its time and, and served on the blockade throughout the board. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Me? Yeah, go ahead. You showed some, I've seen several pictures of the Merrimack or the Virginia. Yes. Yours was the first one I ever saw with a lifeboat. Okay. Did it really have a lifeboat like that? Hang on the side. Well, all the ships had boats. They, there are various sizes. Did the monitor have a lifeboat? No, well, the monitor didn't no. <laughs> but, but you see going ships always carry a few boats. So the monitor wasn't really seaworthy, but the Virginia was. Well, no. Merrimack was. Merrimack. Once they rebuilt it into the Virginia, it wasn't really. Because the, it was, I was looking at the picture of the Virginia that you had, and I said to her, I said, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, Virginia did have a boat. Yeah. Oh, it had Davids in a boat. Of course, it didn't survive the battle. All that stuff got blown off during the battle. Actually, got blown off the day before while we were fighting the Cumberland and the Congress. But, but yeah, they did a, a couple of things. Yes, sir. Go ahead. I had a question, and uh, I'm amazed how close the ships were. Yeah. And I thought you said, but I may have misunderstood you, that uh, there were 11 inch guns and on the monitor, Correct. and I'm curious if that was if those size guns were on land. How how far is their range? And I mean, they're firing at thirty yards. Yeah, no, I mean, I think those guns had an effective range of about a thousand yards. I think um, I'd have to check on that. But that's that within within ballpark. So yeah, we were awfully close. What point blank range, you know, bouncing off these armaments. Although they almost they almost came close to penetrating Virginia's armor. Uh, the Confederates admitted afterwards that if the monitor had fired two or three shots in the same spot, he might have penetrated the armor in behind. Virginia had four inches of armor, two, two two-inch layers. Behind that, they had two feet of pine and oak backing. And Monitor shots dead at that, pushed it in a little bit, it didn't quite penetrate. Of course, the monitor was only firing half charges. They were only firing 15 pounds of pepper because they were afraid of the recoil of the turret. Later, they used full charges. You know, that's one of the what ifs. If they used full charges, they might have penetrated the team's army. Remember the thrill agents of what ifs. I saw on a couple of the diagrams there was a removable ventilation shaft or something. Yeah. What what was that? Uh, on, on, on the back deck of the, of the monitor, there were two um, exhaust stacks with boilers and two air input stacks for the blowers. 
but they were designed too short, and they took them off during combat. That's why the old pictures you see of a runner in combat, the deck is flat. They put those stacks on when they were at sea. Fortunately, the input stacks was only a couple feet tall, and the exhaust stacks were only about six feet tall. And when we encountered the gale coming down from New York, the waves just dumped water right down. So eventually, they built them a little bit taller, which was good. Uh, what did Erickson do after the monitors? Oh, he built he built all the rest of those monitors. Uh, he he and that conglomerate of of, uh, of uh, industrial uh, people uh, kept on building monitors. They essentially invented civilian contracting to build naval ships, contracting and subcontracting, which had been done before and was done a little bit, but but they really took it up. up, up Another level, and um, because Navy shipyards mostly have built the Navy ships before, some of the civilian shipyards, but um, it, it was a it became an industry of its own, quite separate from the from Navy's uh, normal production uh, facility. Thank you. Thank you. That was very interesting. Thank you very much. All right. Um, next month, I suppose, to nobody's surprise, we're going to have a presentation on the Red River campaign to get us ready for our tour, right? Absolutely. Holloway, and we're going to have the Red River campaign, so we'll see you. Next month, I think it's the 14th and uh, second, second Friday, we'll see you right here. Oh, my God. <laughs>